never driven past a barber shop and seen those weird looking poles with the red and the white and sometimes also blue twirls that are spinning outside a barber shop. Have you ever wondered why in the world barber shops have those poles outside of their buildings? Well, that actually came all the way back from the Middle Ages. You see, in the Middle Ages, people who were barbers, who could cut hair, did lots of other stuff, including dental work and even surgery. Because this was people's logic back in the Middle Ages. They were thinking, well, if, if they are skilled at scissors enough to cut hair, maybe they're skilled at scissors enough to cut other stuff, too. And so a barber was also a dentist and a surgeon. The problem was, for these guys, is that people, most people in the Middle Ages couldn't read. And so if a barber came into town, he couldn't just put up a sign that said, Barber. Because nobody would know what that word meant. So they had to get creative. They had to get a creative way to tell who they are and what they did. And they created the barber's pole. The dome shape at the top was symbolic of the bowl of leeches they used to keep. Because they thought leeches could help people with diseases. And the red and white stripes were symbolic of clean and, and bloody rags twisted around a pole. And what could happen is in the Middle Ages, was no matter who you were, even if you couldn't read, you could look at that pole and you knew exactly who that person was and what it is they did. Something they wouldn't have known if the barbers hadn't put that advertisement up. Now, when it comes to God, he gave us advertisements too. You know, just like how in the Middle Ages, how people, they, they would not have known who a barber was or what they could do unless the barber had done something to show them that God is the same way. God is infinitely eternal, and he's infinitely big. Way bigger and eternal, he's infinite than we are. And so unless God stoops down and does something to reveal who he is and what he does we would not be able to figure him out. And that's a big problem because there's a lot of questions that we could have. There's, you know, if God has a perfect plan and a perfect program for your life, wouldn't you want to say, God, will you show me what that plan and program is? If God is going to judge us one day based on a standard of righteousness, a standard of right and wrong, wouldn't you cry out to God and say, God, will you tell me what that standard of right and wrong is that I'm going to be judged by? If there, God has made a way so that we could avoid hell and go to heaven, wouldn't you want to cry out to God, God, make it clear the way you made for us to have eternal life? Or maybe you're here today and you, and you struggle with the even existence of God, and you're asking, I wish God would even make it clear that he exists. Thankfully, God is not silent. And he actually advertises and tells himself and shows us who he is. And he's done it in multiple different ways. And that's what Psalm 19 tells us. So Psalm 19, David, he writes about these two mediums that God uses to advertise and teach us about himself. And the first of those is God. So let's read verses 1 through 6. It says, the heavens tell of the glory of God, and their expanse declare the works of his hands. Day to day pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard 
but their line has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he has placed a tent for the sun, which is like a groom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices like a strong man to run his course. The sun rises from one end of the heavens and circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David, in Psalm 19, pictures God as being the king of kings. And like any king, one of the first things they would do is they would send out heralds to tell people this is who the king is, and this is what the king does, this is what he wills. And the Bible says that God's first messenger to us was nature itself. The skies, in particular, tell us that God has great glory. In verse 2, he says that the skies is God's herald to us, and they speak all the time. They speak day and night. They bubble forth 24 hours a day to us. In verse 3, in verse three, he says that even though the skies are a herald for the Lord, they're completely different from what we do as humans. Because a modern king and a king in ancient worlds, they would want their heralds to be loud. You know, Josie would be a good herald back in the day. They would want their people to be loud. But he says, you are Jesse. <laughs> but the Bible says that God's first heralds are unique because they don't speak a word. But their message goes everywhere in verse 4. There is not a place in the world, there is not a people in the world that can claim complete ignorance of God. Because all they got to do is look up. And see that God exists and he has great glory. Then David takes not just the sky and he narrows his focus down a little bit more to specifically the sun. And the first thing is he talks about how the sun, he's like a groom. So when the sun comes up in the morning, you see those brilliant rays and the blue and the purples and the yellows. And you see how big it is in the morning. And it starts to come up over the sky. David says, man, that's like a groom coming out of his chamber, going toward his wife. He's majestic and wonderful. And he, the point is to say, hey, if the sun is that majestic and radiant, how much more majestic and radiant is the God who created the sun? And then he switches metaphors. And he says, the sun's also like this athlete or this strong man who's running a circuit and a race. And he's excited and he's strong. And he's, he goes across the sky and nothing you can do can stop it. Nothing you can do can change its course. And if the sun is that strong, if the sun is that powerful, how much stronger and more powerful is the God who put the sun in that course? And then he ends with saying, hey, the sun as it crosses the earth, every point on the surface of the earth, to some degree, feels the sun's light and the sun's heat. And the same way, every place on the earth Sees and be able to recognize that God exists, that he has great glory, and, just like there's heat, that God has a judgment against sin. Paul, he'll re-echo these words in Romans chapter 1. He'll say, hey, uh, it's because of that which is known about God is evident within people for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, which is his eternal power and his divine nature, having clearly perceived by people, being understood by what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The skies declare the great glory of God's 
What David is doing in these first six verses, he's talking about something that theologians call general revelation. General revelation. General revelation is the idea that God has so designed the universe that we can look at the universe and learn some things about God. And we can look at the universe and kind of see what type of God we have. Have any of y'all ever seen pictures of like the ancient monuments? Stonehenge, the Pyramid of Giza. You know, what do you think about the people when you see these ancient, large monoliths? You know, you don't look at the pyramids, you don't look at the stone, Stonehenge and go, wow, man, it's so interesting how this random groups of stones just happen to fall into this beautiful design right here that's in perfect symmetry. Man, isn't the universe awesome? No. You look at Stonehenge and, the, Stonehenge and the pyramids of Giza, and you go, man, these men and women who built these things had to be skilled, had to be smart, had to be resourceful. Or you go into an art museum, and you look at a Van Gogh, or you look at a Monet. You know, you don't look at a painting like that and go, man, I just love how these pigments of paint just happen to fall onto this thing over time so that it was just managed over time to produce by random selection this beautiful painting. No. You look at this and you go, man, the person who made this beautiful painting had to have been so skilled and knowledgeable and talented. And the universe is an architectural and engineering feat compared to Stonehenge and the Pyramids of Giza. The universe is an artistic, beautiful feat compared to a Van Gogh and a Monet. And so the skies, they scream at us, and they yell at us all day long. Look, there's a God that exists, and he has great glory. So listen to God speak in nature. What do the colors of the purples and the blues and the oranges, what do they say when you see a sunrise and a sunset? What does it tell you about God when you look at the, the repetition and and the, the, the logic of the, of the water cycle, what does that tell you about God? When you look at the in-depth complexity of a single cell, living cell, what does that tell you about God? You know, first it should tell us that God exists. Secondly, it should tell us that we should be worshiping the type of God that exists like this. Because he's awesome. And third, it tells us that we need to be following the king and creator who can do stuff like that. And so the skies and all of nature teach the great glory of God. But there's a reason why Psalm 19 doesn't stop at verse 6. And that is even though the nature general revelation can teach us a lot about God, there's a lot of very important questions we can't learn from nature. Questions like, what exactly does God want and wish for my life? Questions like, how can I get into a relationship with God? Questions like, if I sin and I wrong God, is there a way for me to avoid that punishment for sin? These are all questions that the sky cannot answer for us. But what it can do is drive us to seek out answers to those questions. And thankfully, we serve a God who is not silent. And God didn't decide to sit back and let us guess 
and think and look at nature only to figure out the answer to those questions. But he chose to speak in a second way. And what he did the second way changes everything. And that's what David writes next, verses 7 through 12, 7 through 11. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much more than pure gold. Sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warmed by them. In keeping them, there's a great reward. In the first half, he talks about a king who's silent and sending heralds. But now he's talking about a king who's speaking directly, not in disguise, but in scripture. And in scripture, we see about God's good plan for you and me. See, the Bible was written over a thousand-year period, over around 40 different authors, 40 different men. But here's the thing about the Bible is that when these men wrote, they weren't just writing their opinions or their own thoughts. They were uniquely inspired by God. So even through their personalities and through their education levels, every single word, every single letter in the original Greek and Hebrew is exactly what God wanted those men to write. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God breathed out, that God has spoken it out. Paul, sorry, Peter told us in 2 Peter that we know that no prophecy of scripture becomes a matter of somewhat of somebody's own interpretation because no prophecy was ever made by any act of human will, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. Because the men were inspired uniquely by God in a way no other book has been written, we can say confidently that this is God's word. It is God speaking directly to you. He's not silent. And so what, what David does first is he kind of describes what the Bible is objectively. In other words, it's what the Bible is regardless of what you think or feel like. And the first thing he does in verses 7 through 9 is give these synonyms for the Bible. It's a law. It's, it's a testimony. It's a precept. It's a, it's a precept. It's a commandment. It's a fear or reverence of God. It's a judgment. This is what Scripture is. Next, he talks about the qualities that make up Scripture. That it's perfect. Or in other words, there's no need to add or take away from it. That it's sure, meaning it's trustworthy. That it's right, which means that it, there's no errors in it. That it's pure, which means there's no blemishes or no corruption in it. That it's clean, meaning that there's no faults in it. That it's true, meaning that it corresponds with reality. That's what the Bible is. And then he gives the Bible's impact on us. It restores our souls. It makes us wise. rejoices our hearts. It enlightens our eyes. The Bible endures forever. It shows us righteous altogether. These are the things that God's word is, regardless of what you think or say about it. Then, though, he gives in the next couple of verses what should be our reaction to the Bible. Because it is a precious gift from God. 
said first we should we should look at the Bible and see it as being more precious than any jewelry box or any amount of rings or anything you have at your house. He says, secondly, we should feel like the Bible is sweeter, more nourishing than honey. And if you don't like honey, <laughs> con pie, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, whatever is that thing you can eat a ton of. The Bible is sweeter than that, or it should be sweeter than that too. And then lastly, verse 11, he says the Bible's useful. It says it teaching us how to live and not live, how to walk and not walk, how to, how to do and not do. And we know by keeping it, there's a great reward. Those should be our reaction to Scripture. Because the Bible is a precious gift from God to us. When I was in high school, and college too, um, me and my friends had a game we liked to play called Math. And so this game now, if you've ever played anything like Crazy Eights or Uno, it's very similar. It was, a, it was a game where you had to get rid of all the cards in your hand, and certain cards had certain abilities, just like Crazy Eight, just like Uno. There was a twist with Mal, though. You weren't allowed to tell anybody the rules. And if anybody broke a rule, they had to draw another card. So in a game where you're trying to get rid of cards, drawing another card is quite a punishment. You don't want to draw a card. And so the fun part about playing Mal was really not the game itself. It was convincing new people to play it with you. Because they didn't know what the rules were. And you did. And you would watch them, man. They'd get so frustrated because they would do stuff and boom, you give them a card. Do something else, boom, here's another card. And you could just see the frustration building and building and building in them as their hand is getting larger and larger and larger. And they know everybody else knows what the rules are, but they keep getting punished for stuff that they've never been told. And then at some point in the game, though, the rules will click on. And you'll see just this rush of excitement, this rush of happiness, like, ah, I know what we're supposed to do now. And then they'll, the game will be fun for them, and they'll be happy to play. Guys, God could have chosen to left us in a world playing a giant game of math, where he had rules, where he had judgments, where he had standards, and he could have made it so that we didn't know what any of those were, and he could have punished us for what they are. Praise the Lord, he didn't leave us like that. Praise the Lord that God is not silent, but he decided to tell us exactly what he wanted us to know. That's why the Bible is a precious gift from God. So what we're talking about here is something called special revelation. And by special revelation, this is what theologians mean is stuff like scripture. These are things that God had to speak directly to us or we wouldn't know. And the Bible doesn't answer every question. It's not a comprehensive book of science. It's not a comprehensive book of history. It doesn't even tell us everything we can know about God. Because God's infinite. So there's always going to be more stuff you can learn about God. So the Bible's not comprehensive. But I'll tell you what it is. It's necessary and it's sufficient. Because God might not have told us everything, but he told us in the Bible exactly what we needed to know that matters for eternity. He put nuggets in there about the things that are full and clear and it's comprehensive that we need to know the stuff that really matters. 
And the best nugget he throws in the Bible for us is the answer to the question, how can we be forgiven so we can have eternal life in a relationship with God? Remember, the skies can't tell us that. The sky and the nature can't tell us how we can have a relationship with God. Nature can't tell us how we can get to heaven. But what nature and the sky can do is drive us to find that answer. And in Scripture, God gives us that answer. And the answer to that question is Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we have sin. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. And so God's Son, Jesus, loves us so much that He willingly came to earth. And when Jesus died on the cross, He paid the penalty for our sins. And He rose from the grave to give us life. And so the Bible makes it clear that it's, there's a one way to heaven. There's one way to eternal life. There's one way to God. And that's through repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus alone. The sky is not going to tell you that. Praise the Lord. Scripture will. And so we see what Paul meant when he was talking to young Timothy. And he was trying to encourage him. And he, he was saying about Timothy's life that from your childhood, you have known the sacred writings. Because they're able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. Through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. It's beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully <laughs> capable and equipped for every good work. We need to listen to Scripture. Do you love, do you desire, do you feel the sweetness of Scripture like David said? Because your love of the Bible is going to correspond to how precious of a gift you think it is. And how precious of a gift you think Jesus is. And so in the first part of this um, psalm, we have the king and God. He's far off. He's not speaking. Then he draws a little bit closer. And he's speaking to us in scripture. And then the last few verses... God draws even closer, and he draws directly to David's heart. And in these last few verses, we get David's request. He says, who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep your servant back from presumptuous sins, and let them not rule over me. Then I will be innocent, and I will be blameless of great wrongdoing. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In these last three verses, David gives us a model for how we should respond to God's revelation today. We see the full main point is that because God's revelation is great and because God's revelation is good, we should follow God completely. And first he says it looks like asking God to forgive us for sinning accidentally. David in verse 12 and verse 13, he calls himself a servant. So he pictures himself, God is the king of kings, coming actually into God's throne room now. And he's standing next to God face to face and he's bowing before God. And he's saying, hey, I'm your servant. I'm your servant right now. And he asks God and says, God, would you show me these errors I don't know? And will you forgive me of those? And that's what we need to do first. Because, guys, here's the thing. Unless you've memorized every word in the Bible... Unless you've made every minute of every second of your life with the purposeful intention of following every detail in the Bible, you have probably sinned accidentally. 
And I can guarantee that includes all of us. Because the only person who's been able to do that is Jesus Christ. And so what he calls us today, he says, you need to realize, listening to me here today, that you need forgiveness in Jesus. Even if you've sinned accidentally, even if you sinned in ways you don't know, you might have sinned in ways that you don't even know were sins. Praise the Lord, Jesus came to earth to forgive us of all our sins. And we all need to cry out. You need to cry out to Jesus the words of David, acquit me of all my hidden faults. That should be our first reaction when we see revelation in God's scripture. Our second reaction is not just to ask God to forgive us of our accidental sins, but also to keep us from sinning on purpose. says, keep me from presumptuous sins. You know, a lot of us, most of us here, most people I've met have no trouble admitting they've sinned accidentally. But let's get real and honest today. Have you ever known something was a sin and did it anyways? Have you ever known that God said don't go there and you went there anyways? Have you ever known that that, that God said something was a sin. You said, you know, I know God said don't do that, but I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it anyways. Have you ever done that? I feel like if we're honest with ourselves and if we're open with ourselves, every one of us can say, I've done that at some point in my life. I've not just sinned accidentally. I have sinned willingly. I've sinned intentionally. There's a reason why it seems like everybody can just feel the, the feelings of people, sorry, of Paul in Romans chapter 7. When he says, For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I don't want to do. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in my inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, raging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner to the law of sin. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be. To God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a reason why every single person I've talked to can identify with Paul. It's because we don't just sin accidentally. We've all sinned purposefully too. So what we need to call to God is not just come to him and fall before our faces like David and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you will forgive me of anything. We need to come to him too and say, hey, don't just forgive me of my sins. Keep me from sinning again. Keep me from sinning willingly. Help me to be blameless, like he said, and innocent before people and before God. So he says, when we see about God's greatness and goodness and revelation, we should pray for his forgiveness, and we should pray to help us keep us from sin. And then lastly, he says we should pray that God will be in all of us and everything we do. You know, in Jesus' day, about a thousand years after this, there was a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were experts at the Bible. The Pharisees were experts at basically not sinning. But if you know the story of Jesus, Jesus called out the Pharisees over and over again. Have you ever wondered why? Because the Pharisees missed what David said in verse 14. Listen to me, guys. I've met a lot of Christians who feel like the primary point of Christianity is to avoid sin. The primary point of Christianity is not just to avoid sin. God wants all of you 
He doesn't want you to not do the bad stuff. He wants you to also do the good stuff. He doesn't want you to just watch what you say and watch what you do. He wants your heart. He wants you to love the Word of God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. He wants you to be like Jesus. And what the Pharisees miss is because they lived life as if all God wanted to do is to not do sin. And Jesus says, I don't want you to just not do sin. I want you to be like God. Amen. And to say, I, all of me, every word of my mouth, every meditation of my heart, I want it to be pleasing to you, God, to the last bit. And that should be our third request for God. Forgive me my sins. Keep me from stealing legally. But may everything I do outside that be acceptable in your sight. So the main point is when we see God's revelation is great and good, we should follow God completely. Psalm 19 is awesome because it's a drama. It's a story. At the beginning, you have God not speaking. Then you have God speaking. And then you have God talking to somebody's heart. At the beginning, you have God sending heralds from his throne room. In the middle, you have God coming into scripture. And then finally, you have human beings Speaking and talking to God in the very presence of God. At the beginning you have no words. At the end you have God in David's heart. What is Psalm 19? It's not a photograph. It's a drama. It's a gospel drama. It's the story of a gracious and glorious God. Stepping out of heaven to come to anyone who's willing to open up their heart, their mind, and their lives to him. So are you willing to open up your heart, your mind, and your life to the Lord Jesus today? In the next few moments, we're going to move on to our Lord's Supper. And um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the Lord's Supper is only for those who, one, are believers in Jesus, and two, are faithfully following the Lord. He says we ought to examine ourselves to see if we're really believers and for faithfully following the Lord. And he warns us. He says, don't take the Lord's Supper wrongly because you're not a faithful follower of Jesus. We here at Greensport, we believe that the Lord's Supper is only for people who are believers of Jesus. And so this is an excellent time, if you do have kids here that aren't believers, to show them, hey, there is a real difference between being a Christian that follows Jesus and somebody who hasn't made that decision yet. And this is a tangible proof of that. But I want to speak to you specifically today if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says all we have to do to receive that forgiveness, to become a Christian, to open yourself up to Jesus is to repent and turn away from your sins and place your faith in Jesus. And if you want to do that today so that you can take the Lord's Supper... You can just say a simple prayer. The prayer itself is not what's important. It's whether you mean the words that you're saying in your heart. And if you say these words today and you really mean these words to God, God will come into your life and he'll save you and you'll be able to have eternal life with God. This is what he's told us we should do in the Bible. And it's a prayer that goes just like this. Say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the grave. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I want to follow you with my whole life. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer today, feel free to take the Lord's Supper. But also, after the service, come talk to me. Because I would love to help you, give you resources, and talk about next steps in your relationship to Jesus. So guys, Deacon, you come forward and we'll set up the table.
take what you pray over the bread. Let's pray.